Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as we continue our series, uh, our Advent series, and this rehearsing of the waiting and the expectation uh, of Israel's great Savior, I invite you to find your way back to Isaiah chapter 9. If you've already closed your Bibles, you can open those back up. And let's pray as we look at God's Word together. Gracious God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us. Thank you that amid all of the, um, the buzz and the busyness of the holiday season, that you invite us to slow down, to open your word, and to hear from you. And that's what we pray we would do this morning, that we would hear your voice um, so meet us by your Spirit, open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear you, soften our hearts for the joy of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was young, one of my favorite uh, and earliest memories uh, uh, for Christmas was when my folks would kind of load me and my siblings up into our sky blue uh, Pontiac Le Mans uh, station wagon. And this would be the night before we would head up to visit grandparents for Christmas. And we would go around town looking at Christmas lights. Uh, it's one of my favorite things as a child, something we do today with our kids. And it, it's always nice to see the displays that are kind of tasteful and simple. Those are, you always appreciate those. But, but you really, you're on the, the, the quest for the holy grail of light displays, the, the house where Christmas threw up, and it was just like 32 inflatables or something like that, and it's time to the music. Every time they plug it in, there's a power dim in the neighborhood and so on. That's what you're looking for, right? And uh, since we are new in town, I will be accepting uh, uh, suggestions after the service as to certain streets or neighborhoods we should check out. So uh, if you've got an idea, please see me. But uh, whether, whether they're tasteful or tacky, uh, there's something festive and joyful in the tradition of displaying lights at Christmas time. Uh, lights, one of the predominant symbols of Christmas, associated with Christmas. We put, a, we put lights on our trees, we put them on our houses, we put them on the advent wreaths and, and in our windows. And, and it's a joyful symbol, and there's really good reason for that, because light is a very biblical symbol of the advent season. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus is the true light of the world who brings light to all men, who's coming into the world. But the thing about light, the thing about light is that you only see its real beauty and power when you're surrounded by darkness. You only see its real beauty and power when you're surrounded by darkness. We don't turn the lights on uh, the outside of our house. We don't turn those Christmas lights on until sundown. Nobody would be able to see them if we did. Uh, you will never see someone walking down the street uh, with a flashlight in the middle of the day. You don't need it then, right? But when the lights go out, that's when you go looking for the flashlight, right? When the, when the storm hits and the power goes out and so on. Uh, in the same way, we only begin to truly understand the beauty and significance of Christmas when we see it against the backdrop 
of the darkness of this fallen world. And this world is dark. Like, it does not work the way that it's supposed to, even in a season when we're supposed to be joyful, right? Everybody's telling you to be holly and jolly. You cannot escape the fact that this world is broken. Last week, we took a look at where this darkness comes from, the nature and consequences of sin, of human rebellion, uh, which is not to say that every trial we face in life is, is a direct result of some sin in our life. It's to say that none of these problems that we face, none of these relational breakdowns or none of the, the ways this world doesn't work, none of that existed until humanity threw off God's rule and decided to try and take His throne for themselves. Uh, Keith walked us through Psalm 53 last week. And, and in that psalm, we see how, if, if you remember what this canvas looked like a couple weeks ago, we had a picture of God's good creation. Well, last week, that, that picture of God's creation had been overrun by the blackness of sin from the fall. And, and so we realize through that, that that Jesus is not only the Savior that God intended before the foundation of the world, He's also the Savior we desperately need because we can't fix that on our own. We need a Savior from above. And that is exactly what God promises to give us as we continue to trace the story of Scripture and come now to the Old Testament prophets this morning, specifically the prophet Isaiah, through whom God promised to raise up a king who's going to bring redemption and wholeness to this dark and sinful world. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 are some of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. Even if you've never read the Bible, you've heard these verses. You see them on the Christmas cards you get in the mail. You hear them pumped through the speaker at Walmart in every December with the Christmas music that's playing. For to us a son, a child is born, to us a son is given. God promises a Savior. That's what, that's what Advent is about, waiting for Him to fulfill this promise of a Savior. And yet, these verses have not always been floating around on their own as we're used to seeing them. You know, on a on a calendar or a card or a, or a Facebook meme or something like that. Rather, these verses come from a pivotal moment in the story of an ancient people, of God's ancient covenant people, Israel. Sometimes we forget that the, the Christmas story doesn't start in the New Testament or with the Gospel of Matthew. But rather, that story is picking up a story that's been, that's been told for a long time, all the way back to before creation, through Israel's story, a story of all humanity. And, and to really understand, therefore, that the true beauty and power of what we celebrate at Christmas, uh, to understand the significance of these verses that are, that are so common and popular and special to us, we need to understand the weight of Israel's longing and waiting, and therefore what we're really waiting for with Advent. 
We need to understand the story into which God spoke these words of promise. Israel in Isaiah's day when they were sitting in darkness waiting for light. And so Isaiah chapter 9, the book of Isaiah was, was written about 800 years before the birth of Christ to give you a little context of, of how rich these promises are. And it was written during a time when God's people, Israel, had been split into two different kingdoms. And so, you know, under David, they were united as a single kingdom, and the same thing was true under Solomon. But then when Solomon's son took over, the nation split into two. And so, you had Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem and, and the descendant of David ruling on the throne. And then you had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim which is kind of confusing because Israel sometimes in the Old Testament refers to all of God's people, and then sometimes it refers to just part of them up in the north. In Isaiah, it's usually talking about the northern kingdom. And in chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah, which is where we find the, the passage we're looking at this morning, we read about a conflict between these two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. Israel in the north had aligned with their neighbor, Syria, or some of your translations will, will call it Aram. Um, they had aligned with their neighbor, Syria, and together they were threatening to attack Judah and replace Judah's king with one of their own so that they could basically run things, right? Um, so, if, if you can imagine for a moment, it would be like today, say, pretend for a minute that that France and Spain used to be one nation, and then eventually they split up. It would be like France saying, hey, Germany, why don't you help us uh, take out Spain's king and put in our own guy there, right? Not cool. And, and so, it shows us that even as the story unfolds, Israel still has not shaken the sin problem. Like, they're still living under this darkness and, and cloud, and now this dark cloud of war is rolling over the horizon in their story. And a guy named Ahaz, who at this point is the rightful king of Judah, sitting on David's throne, Ahaz has to decide, what's he going to do about it? Like, how's he going to handle this looming threat from the north as, as Israel and Syria team up against him? And so, God sends a prophet named Isaiah to help him, to guide him. And Isaiah tells Ahaz, don't be afraid. You don't need to worry about this. You just need to trust the Lord. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So, Isaiah tells him to trust God. But Ahaz, Judah's king, decides that well, instead of trusting in a, in a king that I can't see, I think I'm going to trust in a king that I can see, that I know who's actually going to do something. And so, he puts his confidence and faith in the king of Assyria, which is the dominant empire in that day. Uh, Assyria was a nation that could come out, uh, that could come and, and take out Israel, uh, Judah's enemies, the threats, Israel and Syria for him. So, if you go back to that kind of fictitious scenario I had where, you know, Germany and France are, are tag-teaming against Spain, it'd be like Spain calling in Russia or China to come deal with them. 
That would be, that's what it's like to call on Assyria. And that's what Ahaz does. He turns a deaf ear to God and instead puts his trust in the Assyrian king. But what he fails to realize is that once Assyria is unleashed on Judah's neighbors, what's to stop them uh, at Judah's gate? Like, if they've made it that far, why not keep going? And that's what Isaiah warns them is going to happen. That, that the flood, when the flood that is Assyria sweeps over Israel and Syria, it's going to then overflow into Judah, rising all the way up to their neck. They won't quite drown, but they're going to they're going to saturate the place. So here's a map, actually, to help you kind of picture this uh, scenario. Down in the south there, you have Judah and the capital, Jerusalem there. And then up is the, uh, the spread of Assyria, and it's taking over everything in the ancient land. It, it takes over Syria and Israel, and it's just splashing against Judah's border. That's what Ahaz has brought upon himself. The coming of Assyria is going to be a dark day for Judah. Isaiah describes it like this in chapter 7. He says, In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. So it's, it's this picture of desolation and desperation. Uh, as one author describes, the land will have been so devastated and depopulated by Assyria that farming it will be impossible. The survivors will have to exist on the products of the few animals they have left and any wild food they can gather. So you imagine, you know, this, this, all of the rich, fertile farm ground that surrounds us being overrun and taken out such that you can't grow anything there anymore. That's the picture. And, and why does that devastation come upon Judah? Well, Judah's king, who's supposed to lead God's people according to God's word, has instead rejected, ignored God, and his people have just followed suit. They've done the same thing. And as a result, you get to the end of chapter 8, and Isaiah warns them that they're going to pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. If you've ever disciplined your child for something they did wrong, and then they turn around and, and blame you for their misery, that's basically what Judah's doing here with God. I mean, you, you tell your kid, hey, don't do this. If you do this, this is the consequence. They do it anyway, they get the consequence, and then they hate you because of it. Or maybe you've done that to your kids. That's Judah here. 
God has warned them. He's pleaded with them. He sent His prophets to them. They ignored Him, and now they're living with the consequences and blaming God for it all, blaming the, the, their God and the king that He put on His throne. And, and God would have been totally justified to end the story there. Like, He could have just said, game over. If you want to trust in this pretend God and this pathetic replacement, go live your best life, and all you're going to see is gloom and deep darkness around you. God could have ended the story there, but He didn't. And we praise God that He didn't. Instead, the prophet's voice turns from a warning of judgment to a promise of joy. Pivotal moment in Israel's story, a promise of light that's going to break through the gloom and the deep darkness of God's people. And so chapter 9, verse 1, think about the warning at the end of chapter 8, and then listen to the promise at the beginning of nine, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he's made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So again, notice the contrast. You have gloom, anguish, darkness, deep darkness at the end of chapter 8. All of that repeated, but now overturned and replaced with light. That's what God promises to do. And, and, and Zebulun and Naphtali, these were northern tribes. They were the tribes, that, the part of the northern kingdom that first felt a serious sword, where, where they are in that region, God's going to send His light first that will break through the darkness of God's entire people, both north and south. And as a result, that gloom, that gloom that they brought upon themselves through their sin, that gloom is going to be replaced with joy. If you look at verse 3, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy they rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So, four times he mentions that joy is going to come, joy and gladness, when that light finally pierces the darkness. When we lived in New England, um, because there are so many trees along the roads and, and near the power lines, it was not uncommon to uh, lose power in the winter, sometimes several times, and sometimes for several days. And at that moment, you know, so you're sitting around the fireplace trying to keep warm, and, it's, and you're going on day three, and that moment when the lights finally come back on, you know, what happens, right? Your heart does this little cartwheel, and you start cheering, right? Yes, finally! That, that little joy, that's a tiny, tiny sliver of the kind of joy God's people will feel when the lights finally come back on, 
when His light breaks through their darkness of sin and war. Israel, uh, Isaiah describes it here like the joy of a harvest or, or of dividing the spoil after a war. So it's this picture of, of moving from fear to joy. The, the fear and anxiety of whether or not we're going to have enough food to the joy of a plentiful harvest or, or the terror of battle to the joy of sorting through your vanquished enemy's resources and deciding who gets to take what home. That's the picture. It's a joy that brings rest where there had been fear and gloom. But what is that joy based on? Isaiah promises God is going to restore their joy. How? What is the actual light that breaks through the darkness? Well, if you notice, the next three verses all begin with the same word, four, four. That tells you that the author is giving us three reasons of why Israel and Judah are going to rejoice. The first two reasons tell us what's going to happen that's going to bring about that joy. And the third tells us how it's going to happen. What our joy ultimately hangs on. And so the first reason for their joy is that when the light finally dawns, Israel's oppression and slavery will be over. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So, so picture that, this yoke that Israel's been carrying, or, or the rod of his oppressor, the stick they're using to beat them, to get them to do what they want them to do. God's going to rip it out of their oppressor's hand and snap it over his leg. Their oppression and slavery will be done just as he showed up with Gideon to help him miraculously defeat the Midianites. Clear back in the book of Judges, this completely outnumbered army, and God shows up to bring the deliverance in the same way he's going to rescue his people. But, but Judah's burden at this point, it, it's a little different. Their burden is not um, just like what the, the, the slavery they experienced in Egypt, Right? Uh, when they were in this foreign land and so on, their burden and oppression here is a lot more subtle yet all-encompassing. It's, it's the oppression that comes from living in occupied territory where you're trying to go about your normal day in your, in your own home and town but under the constant threat of the presence of the Assyrian army who at any moment could snap and punish you. That's the oppression they're fearing. And, the, and that they're, they're going through. Um, my brother-in-law grew up in El Salvador during their civil war. And he remembers as a child having to stay on the floor below the window at night. Because if you stood up, you could get shot. And so that's how he spent his childhood. Now imagine the joy and freedom when the war's finally over, of being able to sit in your chair at the end of the day when the, when the sun has gone down and not worry about a bullet coming through your window. Like, that's joy. That's freedom, right? And, and that joyful freedom comes from the next 
reason we're given in verse 5, the battle is finally over. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And that's a pretty graphic verse, right? I mean, what what does that have to do with joy? But think about what the imagery is saying. If you ever watch a war film or war movies or, or films with big epic battles in them, like Lord of the Rings or something, there's often this scene where, where the camera just kind of scans the horizon and you see this vista of all of the slain on the battlefield when it's over. Something has to happen to all of that. Somebody has to clean all of that up. That's what verse 5 is talking about. It's cleaning up the battlefield when the war is finally over, which is graphic and gory and bloody, but incredibly liberating because it means the war is done. And, and, and there's even a sense of finality in this picture here. Uh, one author explains that, you know, bloodstained clothing might be reasonably burned, but why destroy valuable boots that can easily be cleaned unless they're no longer needed. In other words, unless there's no more war ever. That's the picture. When the light pierces the darkness, Israel's slavery will be ended. The battle will be finished. All battles will be finished. God is going to make everything that's broken in this world right once again, in and among His people, their war, but also their sin, which is the cause of their war. And, and that's the same joy and freedom that we long for, too. I mean, to know that the difficulties we face, that the sin that continues to plague our hearts, that it will be finally and forever done away with. I mean, the the depression and anxiety that paralyzes us, that that takes what ought to be just a normal everyday thing and infinitely complicates it. Or the chronic pain, chronic physical pain that so many live with and wears them down day after day. The loss that so many of us feel, especially at Christmas time, amid the, the the clamor and the glimmer and, and so on, just this reminder of brokenness, whether the brokenness of our hearts, the brokenness of our families, uh, the, the loss of, of deceased loved ones, the financial strain, all of this pressure to buy, 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 and how do we do that? The shame and guilt that comes from knowing that we've let people down, we've let our family down, we've let God down, to know one day all of that will be forever and finally done away with. That is the longing of joy that we see here. That's the promise of joy. So, what is the ultimate basis for it? Like, where does this 
joy finally come from, this, this light that's going to dawn? Is this something we're supposed to do? Like, is God asking us, all right, now it's your turn to either take up arms or to, to find a way to fix the situation? You know, is it, is it simply a matter of, well, we just got to figure out what right programs to run for the church, and then joy will dawn? Or we've got to get the right politicians in office, or the right justices on the bench, or we've got to put social pressure on the right corporations or institutions, and then joy will dawn. No. No, the light that we need is not a light that we find from within or create from below. It is the light of God coming down from heaven in His own zeal for His name and His people. And that brings us to the third basis for joy, the very heart of our joy in the climax of this passage in verses 6 and 7, the Savior that God promised. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God himself will do this. And when you think about the the imagery of victory and liberation in verses 4 and 5, battle's over, it's been won, and so on and so forth. Uh, This is not the picture you expect to read after that. Like, when you're talking about the end of the war, you're thinking that's because a king has showed up with a sharp sword to slay his enemies and make everything right. Like, that's what you expect to read in verses 6 and 7. Instead, we have a birth announcement. We have a birth announcement here. The arrival of a child. That doesn't make sense. But it's not just any child. It's the child. The one that Israel's been waiting for for the entire story. A child who will one day sit on David's throne and do for God's people what Ahaz and every other king failed to do. He will establish justice and righteousness and peace, and, and not just with the, the nations around them, but with God in heaven, real justice and righteousness. A child who comes into this world in the most human of ways, through birth, but is described in language that far surpasses our expectations for any merely human child. He's the wonderful counselor. You know, when we spend our day tripping in the dark, uh, this king is wise enough to tell us where to go. He's mighty God. He accomplishes 
his plans in God's own strength as God himself. He's the everlasting father. And whereas it was common for kings in the ancient world to kind of consider themselves to be fathers to their kingdoms, here is one who's going to care for his people, not momentarily or imperfectly, but in perfect care forever. The everlasting father. Notice the repetition of forever language in these promises. His kingdom will have no end. He will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We can rest in this king because he's always going to be around to do what is right and to make right what is wrong. He is God with us. He's Emmanuel from Isaiah 7. And finally, he's called the Prince of Peace. A Prince of Peace. And that's what we need, isn't it? That's what our hearts are ultimately longing for. Peace to know for this world to be right, for it to be made whole and be at peace again, for our lives and our relationships to be made whole, to be at peace, for our hearts to be made whole once more and never to be broken again by sin and deceit, for our relationship with God to be at peace, to know that the charges that are rightfully filed against us have been dropped, and that when God looks upon us, He smiles. He's not shaking His finger and wagging His head, but instead opening His arms and welcoming us into His love to have that relationship with God, be at peace. That's what we long for. This King, and only this King, is able to bring that peace. God doesn't leave us in the darkness of our sin. He promises to send light, to send our long-expected Savior. And as we're going to see on Tuesday when we look at Ephesians 1, and as we celebrate every Christmas, God has fulfilled that promise by sending His eternal Son, Jesus, into this world. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that when the shepherds stood on the hills in Luke 2, that they beheld the light of God's glory when the angel announced the birth of God's Son, echoing the words of Isaiah 9, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I don't think it's a coincidence, a coincidence that Jesus grew up in Galilee of the Gentiles, that, that northern region where the light of God first dawned, just as He promised in Isaiah 9. And with the announcement of Jesus' birth, that begins the hope and joy of everything that God promised through the prophet Isaiah. I mean, through this king, God will establish justice and righteousness and peace. 
He's going to mend everything that's broken in this world by sin. Through this king, he's going to swallow up the darkness forever. That's the promise, Isaiah 25. And and he's going to do it in stages. First, he's going to win the battle through the cross and the resurrection, and then he's going to come again to claim the prize. And he will do it at great cost to self. If you read through the book of Isaiah and kind of follow the themes of that book, you, you realize that, that the promised king in the early chapters of the book is the same person as the suffering servant in the later chapters of the book. This one from Isaiah 53 who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows even though we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. We, we looked at him and said, if you get treated that way, God must be against you. Yet he's, he's getting treated that way for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. He's the prince of peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That king who's coming, he's the one who brings peace, but that peace costs him everything. And, and you think about that in, in light of the Christmas story. You think about that in light of the brokenness we often feel at Christmas, the reminders of of how this world doesn't work. As one author describes, with the, the joy over this little baby in the manger came the promised reality that the joy would soon turn to momentary grief. We have a perfect heavenly Father who knows what what it means to grieve over loss. The darkness of our world is not foreign to this God. He's not aloof. He is present with us because He knows us deeply and walks with us in our pain. He has endured deep pain too. Think about that. If we think about Christmas and are heartbroken to face another holiday with tears, we have hope. While Mary faced heart-piercing grief as she birthed her son, this grief was for the good of us all. While God the Son suffered at the crucifixion, by His suffering we are healed. And He is a great high priest who can sympathize with our suffering. The joy of Christmas is knowing that God did not leave us in the dark, but He entered the darkness through Jesus to swallow it by giving His own life. And the the invitation of Christmas is that everyone who knows this Savior can know this joy forever. This lasting joy that no darkness can take away, that can be ours forever through faith 
in this son. Do you know that joy? Do you know that joy that no darkness can overcome? Do you believe that God keeps his promises? The joy of Christmas is that even when the lights still go out, we have a king who's familiar with our sufferings, who has defeated and disarmed sin and darkness, and who will come again to remove it forever. This is the Savior that God promised. As we're going to celebrate Tuesday, this is the Savior that God sent. And as we're going to see next Sunday, this is the Savior who's coming again. So may our celebration be marked with the real joy that comes from Christ Himself, the Savior God promised us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, help our hearts to be filled with a joy that doesn't come from this world, that doesn't come from what we get this Christmas, that doesn't come from planning the perfect Christmas party or making all of our travel plans work well. Lord, fill our hearts with a joy that knows that you have pierced the darkness with the light of your Son, that you have dealt at the core with everything wrong with this world and wrong with our hearts, and that you are coming, that your Son is coming again to make all things new. Lord, give us joy and hope that stays above the darkness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.